The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson, and this is the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. We have a great show today. John Donne and the Metaphysical Poets, including his poem about a flea. Write a poem about a flea and become immortal. How does that happen? It takes a special kind of genius. Speaking of genius, we're sponsored today by Audible, your home for great audiobooks, including many written by geniuses like Gertrude Stein and Alice Munro. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And now, a special offer. You can get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial. Compliments of our show. Just visit audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. That's audibletrial.com slash H as in Henry James, O as in Oscar Wilde, and L as in liquored up. (laughs) You'll need it for the James. Just kidding. I don't know where that came from. Why did that come to me? L is in Lori Moore. How about that? Oh, there it is. That's the sound of breaking news here at the History of Literature podcast. I'm not sure I know what the breaking news is. Gar, have you got some news? Are you handing me some breaking news? Yes, it's breaking news. What is it? Free literary postcards? Yes, there are still several available, but that's not breaking news. We've been doing that for a while. In fact, we got a second shipment in. We've been shipping them out. Just send me an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. I love sending those out. It's a good use for postage. But here's the news, the real news, some news about my soul, my soul, my soul, my soul. started as just another comment from a listener. Hello, Jackie, it said. I just wanted to say thank you for what you're doing. I am a 22-year-old English comparative literature student from Aarhus, with book-crammed shelves and always more piling up, but you have sent me scuttling back to the bookstores for more Lawrence, O'Connor, and Flaubert, not to speak of obscure reference works for the Don Juan and Faust mythologies. Even though my days are always bursting with reading, I always seem to find time for an episode of your podcast to unwind my thoughts and to listen to someone who is as passionate about this literature stuff as I am. P.S. My girlfriend says hi and kind of damns you for filling our apartment with books upon books. Kind regards, Tobias. (laughs) Damns me. The girlfriend says hi and then... Kind of damns me. How devious is that? She wants to say hi. A little kindness just to put me at ease, I suppose. And then in goes the knife. Damns me. Look, just because I'm an agnostic doesn't mean I'm not terrified of hell. Or am I overreacting? It does say that she kind of damns me. What is that? Purgatory? We need to do our Dante show pretty soon. Maybe we'll figure it out then. Speaking of being damned, or kind of damned, 
Tobias, maybe try a Kindle. Maybe audiobooks. I know where you can get some. Maybe get a larger apartment. Something to save Jack's soul. (laughs) Poor Jack. Trying to spread some joy. Trying to defeat some loneliness. And the response? Hi. And go to hell. Or kind of go to hell. Kind of go to hell. Kind of go to hell. How many times have I rolled that one out there? The very Wisconsin kind of thing to say. Oh, you kind of go to hell. Or <laughs> go to hell, but hey, keep in touch, okay? Let me know how you're doing. Oh, boy. Rolling out the Wisconsin. The impersonations are just flying now. I think my Orson Welles impersonation. Impersonation? Why have I heard... Oh, I can't talk today. My Orson Welles impersonation was a huge hit. I won't do it again. It takes too long. Well, okay. Maybe just the short version. Oh, not bad, right? And it doesn't take that long at all. That's all I have. It takes a lot out of me, though. You try playing cinema's greatest director, a personality like Orson Welles, and see if you're not tired at the end and see if you're not terrified every time you're supposed to do it. I'm not Brian Cranston, okay? I'm not Kate Winslet. I can't just turn it on like a switch whenever I want. It's not easy to play Orson Welles just because you want me to. You know what, listeners? You can all go to hell. Kind of. Okay, let's get started on the show. John Donne and the Metaphysical Poets. How in the world did he end up writing about a flea? And how did it become so controversial? We'll find out after this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Somehow John Donne always seems 50 years older than Shakespeare to me. I think it's a trick of anthologies. Shakespeare comes first, along with Christopher Marlowe and Ben Jonson, and then Andrew Marvell and John Donne always after. But they weren't 50 years apart, Donne and Shakespeare. They were almost contemporaries. Donne was born in 1573, nine years after Shakespeare. Unlike Shakespeare, he was highly educated. By that I mean formally 
educated. Shakespeare seems to have left school around age 14, maybe even 13. That was just regular grammar school, as far as we know. We have no record of him attending university. Dunn, meanwhile, was just getting started. At 11, he went to Oxford and studied there for three years. Then he went to Cambridge and studied three more. He couldn't graduate from either because of his parents' religion. They were Roman Catholic at a time when Roman Catholics weren't allowed to take a degree. After that, he went and studied law in London. And he wound up in London in a very high-placed position. In 1598, he became the secretary to Thomas Egerton, the Lord Keeper of the Great Seal. That's 1598 in London. We don't know that Shakespeare and Dunn ever met, but boy, 1598 in London, they seem to have had some common friends. We really don't know, and I'd hate to speculate, but is it too much to speculate that Dunn would have at least known of Shakespeare's works? The sonnets, the plays, how could he miss them? This was peak Shakespeare, and Dunn was a big fan of literature. He was living an active life. He had money, and he spent it on his favorite pursuits, especially women, but also literature and other pastimes. And then John Dunn had a very curious downfall. In 1601, he married his sweetheart without her father's consent. A year later, he was imprisoned for doing so. You can't mess around with a father's consent in Elizabethan England. Boy, boy, just think about what that means. Consent of the wife, one would think that would be enough. But no, you need dad too. Actually, you probably needed dad more. If you had the father's consent, but not the wife's, you probably wouldn't go to jail. You'd probably live happily ever after, except for the part where your wife hates you. That's not so happy. You and Dad, though, you're okay. The two of you will be in clover. Anyway, Dunn lost his job as secretary to the Lord Keeper of the Great Seal, which apparently was not a job you could do from jail. And he was suddenly poor for the first time. These were good years for Dunn as an artist. He was wrestling with his conscience and his own ambitions and his religious views. He underwent a kind of crisis. There were very vivid days to be a Catholic in England, and by vivid I mean extremely dangerous. In 1593, Queen Elizabeth had issued something called an Act for Restraining Popish Recusants, which is not good for Catholics. Dunn's brother Henry was arrested for harboring a Catholic priest, William Harrington, and poor Henry was tortured until he gave the priest up. The priest, Harrington, was then tortured on the rack, hanged until not quite dead, and disemboweled. Not pretty, which is an understatement. It was horrendous. Henry Dunn died in prison. He was in the famous or notorious Newgate prison, which is a very prominent prison in the history of literature, thanks to Dickens and Defoe's Mall Flanders and Chaucer. Henry Dunn, John's brother, died of bubonic plague while in prison. And Dunn started to question things, started to question his faith and religion, all of it. What kind of world was this that would allow such things to happen? And what kind of religion would permit it? What kind of religious impulses, religious feelings, where did religion fit in all of this? It seemed to be causing this trouble. And meanwhile, John Dunn was writing fabulous poetry. This was 15 years or so in his life. 
What are some examples of his poems? I'll talk about them in a moment, but they're famous for what's called a conceit. I suppose I should define that, but you know what it means, right? It's like a device, a poetic device, a hook that starts the creative juices flowing. You say your love is like a river, and you go on about it for ten lines or so about how the love flows, and there are curves involved, and reflections on the surface, and cool breezes blowing gently in the soft evening air, just like a river. Well, that's essentially a conceit. And Dunn was the king. He and several others in this period, like Andrew Marvell and Henry Vaughn and George Herbert and a few others, they weren't part of a school in the sense of being a group that met all the time and discussed poetry and thought about what poetry should do and encouraged one another. But they had enough similarities. Eventually, they became grouped together because of these conceits, these wildly inventive and sometimes ingeniously wild extended metaphors or analogies. Well... I don't need to leave you with that poor example of the river that I hastily grabbed from thin air. Let's take a look at a poem. Here's one by George Herbert. You might know him as the guy who wrote Easter Wings, in which the lines of the poem are short and long to give the poem the appearance of wings. That's a trick. And I usually don't really care much for tricks in literature, but I'll make an exception for this one because you can point to Easter Wings whenever someone today writes a poem and says something like, Hey, look. Here's a poem about childhood, and it's in the shape of a tire swing hanging from a tree. You can just nod your head and say, oh yeah, didn't George Herbert do something like that in 1600? Here's George Herbert's poem, Man. As I read it, listen for how the concept of man is extended and extended and extended until it's pulled into something else altogether. It's like pastry dough that you knead and knead and stretch. And stretch, and you know when it's ready, when you can hold it up to the sunlight and see that it's just starting to be transparent. That's kind of the point to these poems, in a sense. Stretch and stretch and stretch the idea until something is visible, something starts to come into view. Call it truth. So, here is man. My God, I heard this day that none doth build a stately habitation, but he that means to dwell therein. What house more stately hath there been, or can be, than is man, to whose creation all things are in decay? For man is everything, and more. He is a tree, yet bears more fruit, a beast, yet is or should be more. Reason and speech we only bring. Parrots may thank us, if they are not mute. They go up, they go upon the score. Man is all symmetry, full of proportions, one limb to another, and all to the world besides. Each part may call the furthest brother, for head with foot hath private amity, and both with moons and tides. Nothing hath got so far, but man hath caught and kept it as his prey. His eyes dismount the highest star, he is in little all the sphere. Herbs gladly cure our flesh, because that they find their acquaintance there. For us the winds do blow, the earth doth rest, heaven move, and fountains flow. Nothing we see but means our good, as our delight or as our treasure. The whole is either our cupboard of food or cabinet of pleasure. The stars have us to bed, night draws the curtain, which the sun withdraws, music and light attend our head. All things unto our flesh are kind in their descent and being to our mind in their ascent and cause. Each thing is full of duty, 
Waters united are our navigation, distinguished our habitation. Below our drink, above our meat, both are our cleanliness. Hath one such beauty, then how are all things neat? More servants wait on man than he'll take notice of. In every path he treads down that which doth befriend him when sickness makes him pale and wan. O mighty love, man is one world and hath another to attend him. Since then, my God, thou hast so brave a palace built, O dwell in it, that it may dwell with thee at last. Till then, afford us so much wit that as the world serves us, we may serve thee, and both thy servants be. Dr. Johnson, writing in the 18th century, gave these poets the name the Metaphysical School. A few others had pointed this out, that these poets at this time, in the period just after Shakespeare, even overlapping with Shakespeare, that they were interested in metaphysics, ideas, abstract ideas, pushing things pretty far down an intellectual path, seeing where language and thoughts could take you. John Donne was a lawyer and eventually a priest, a dangerous combination. His poems and eventually his sermons were sometimes crafted like arguments, though that suggests that they weren't fanciful. But they were. They were very creative. They are just creative in, a, in an exploratory way. You imagine the poet thinking, this is like that, and I'm going to really push that hard to see what it reveals. At its best, it does reveal something. At its worst, the poems can feel a little sterile or gimmicky, a parlor game, kind of a trick or a display. But they're serious. Dunn wrote an extended piece on the grounds on which one could rightly take one's own life. He wasn't trying to play games. He wasn't some frivolous person with nothing better to do, at least not all the time. Sometimes the poems read a little bit like that, like he's in on the joke, and I'll get to one of those in a, later in the show here today. He wrote poems like Death Be Not Proud and Batter My Heart. These are part of what are called the Holy Sonnets, as he himself was going through a religious struggle. And to keep things in context, when we talk about the metaphysical school, is it really so strange that they were writing poems like this at this time? Wasn't Shakespeare already on that path? Shakespeare's sonnets are like conceits, and one of them, Sonnet 130, undermines the very concept of conceits as used or overused in love poems. You know that one, my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. And it goes on describing her, and in the final couplet, the kicker, it basically says, I can't compare her with anything the way all you poets do. It would be all lies, because those comparisons don't hold up. Her voice is not really like music, not really. Music is awesome. It's beautiful. Whose voice is like that? And she walks, yes, but she walks on the ground. She doesn't fly like a nightingale or float like an angel. And yet, I love her anyway. And you know what? My love is better because I'm not exaggerating it. Those last two lines are, And yet, by heaven, I think my love is rare as any she belied with false compare. I have my own story on this one, on Sonnet 130. Kind of a funny story, but also a sad one in a way. I was in Taiwan, teaching away. <laughs> I've never heard that phrase before, but it fits. Teaching away, teaching my head off. And one of my students was getting married. She had an engagement album she wanted to show me. It was full of photos of her and her beloved, dressed in nice clothes. 
their hair immaculate in an, in an expensive-looking way, makeup professionally done, all, all, all what you would expect for a nice wedding. And all of this recorded in this nice book, nice cover, nice thick pages, very classy. And English, that was another classy touch to adorn things with English. You would see that all the time in Taiwan. A greeting card, for example, would have English letters, English words. It might say something strange, the words, and it might say nothing at all. It might just be random letters in the alphabet. There to give a little garnish, a little ornamentation, and a touch of worldliness, I suppose. A little class. So in this album, my student was there looking beautiful. A young bride full of regal smiles and perfect posture. And this book had English on every page at the bottom was a line of Sonnet 130 running across. It was like a cruel joke. I have to think that some English major, some bored guy, somebody who knew English had the job of finding those poems and adding them to the, to the portfolios, to the albums. I have to think that that person knew what he or she was doing they probably hated their job and hated life and thought it would be really funny to do this because what ended up happening is that there would be a photo of the bride-to-be, a full-page photo, and underneath the caption would say, Coral is far more red than her lips red. Or, if hairs be wires, black wires grow upon her head. Lines from the sonnet. I just turned the pages, staggered, agog, Nearly blurting out my thoughts, my teacher's instinct almost kicked in. Hey, this is Shakespeare, you know, but it's all wrong. Luckily, I held my tongue, though it wasn't easy. When I turned to the last page and the bride and groom were kissing in this delicate way, staged in front of a waterfall with green leaves and flowers, butterflies all around, and a caption underneath that said, and in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I held my tongue. And that's why it's so sad. She never knew that someone had pranked her. And everyone she knew who knew English, well, hopefully they didn't really notice. Hopefully it was just me. Hopefully I'm the only one who ever knew the secret. And now, all of you. Back to the subject. We're seeing where the metaphysical poets are in the history of literature after Shakespeare, but barely after. The Christianity here is prominent, but not yet prudish. Women and sex are fair game for poems, subjects not to be avoided, and in fact, embraced. In every sense of the word, I guess. Dunn wrote one called To His Mistress on Going to Bed, in which he essentially strips her down in his words, every line, line by line. He describes every garment as she removes it. And then in the end, he reveals that he himself is already naked. It's actually kind of exciting. It's not, what you, not what you might expect when you open up an anthology of Elizabethan poems. This is before the Puritans came on the scene and shut everything down. And the metaphysical poets were dealing with more than just sex. Matters of the spirit, too, and the soul. And this is long before Dr. Johnson picked up some criticism raised by Dryden that these poems were not classical enough, not refined enough. Johnson objected to the wild analogies, 
They seemed too violent to him. I think he was looking for Mozart, and these poets were Stravinsky. Here's Johnson's take on them in his book, Lives of the Most Eminent Poets. Quote, The metaphysical poets were men of learning, and to show their learning was their whole endeavor. But, unluckily resolving to show it in rhyme, instead of writing poetry, they only wrote verses. And very often such verses as stood the trial of the finger better than of the ear, for the modulation was so imperfect that they were only found to be verses by counting the syllables. The most heterogeneous ideas are yoked by violence together. Nature and art are ransacked for illustrations, comparisons, and allusions. Their learning instructs, and their subtlety surprises. But the reader commonly thinks his improvement dearly bought, and though he sometimes admires, is seldom pleased. Yoked by violence together. That's why, that's why I love Johnson so much. I disagree with him. But man, what phrases. Nature and art are ransacked for illustrations, comparisons, and illusions. Though he sometimes admires Mr. Johnson, Dr. Johnson, he is seldom pleased. I disagree with him, and yet I'm willing to concede that he's right simply because I could never articulate my own position as well as he articulates his. I cede the floor to Dr. Johnson, shaking my head. T.S. Eliot came along 150 or so years later, and he did not cede the floor. He said, hang on, Dr. Johnson, you may have undervalued these guys. And Eliot invented his phrase, dissociative sensibility, to describe what they were up to. And T.S. Eliot is, of course, a great mind in the world of poetry. He was a great poet himself and a great critic and gave much to the world of literature. But I can't help noticing when he's trying so hard to be John Keats, who dashed off in a letter the phrase negative capability that Eliot probably had to learn about in college. I think he's imitating it here. It's like all those writers who read Nabokov's famous parenthetical, Picnic, comma, Lightning, and they stuck that little trick in their bag and they rolled it out to be funny when they needed to be funny. And everyone can only pretend to laugh because they see that it's derivative and not quite as good as the original never is. Dissociative dissociative sensibility. People wrestled with the phrase for a while, but it's no negative capability, and it hasn't lasted. What did Eliot mean? Let's let old Possum say things his way. Quote, If so shrewd and sensitive, though so limited a critic as Johnson, failed to define metaphysical poetry by its faults, there's a good... Let me pause there. I didn't realize this, that we'd have another parenthetical just after I was talking about Nabokov, but there it is. That's a pretty good parenthetical, though so limited. Let's start over. Quote, If so shrewd and sensitive, though so limited, a critic as Johnson failed to define metaphysical poetry by its faults, It is worthwhile to inquire whether we may not have more success by adopting the opposite method, by assuming that the poets of the 17th century up to the Revolution were the direct and normal development of the precedent age, and without prejudicing their case by the adjective metaphysical, consider whether their virtue was not something permanently valuable, which subsequently disappeared, but ought not to have disappeared. 
Johnson is hit perhaps by accident on one of their peculiarities when he observes that their attempts were always analytic. He would not agree that, after the dissociation, they put the material together again in a new unity. The poets of the 17th century, the successors of the dramatists of the 16th, possessed a mechanism of sensibility which could devour any kind of experience. They are simple, artificial, difficult, or fantastic, as their predecessors were. A dissociation of sensibility set in from which we have never recovered. While the language became more refined, the feeling became more crude. End quote. That takes us to the present day, really. It jumps over the romantics, but we're still riding out Eliot's run, still on that craps table streak that he started or pointed out, called us over to the table to show it to us. At least most of us are. We see no problem with marrying high and low today. We like styles like that. We like things that mix. We like pop music that has serious lyrics or a serious poet who doesn't mind taking on the crunch of cornflakes. We see nothing wrong with Hitchcock being treated as a genius, even though he made suspense movies, or Tarantino's bloodbaths deserving their own retrospective. You can write about sex now in a refined way, a hyper-refined way, or you can yoke together something as rarefied as literature with something as debased as a podcast spoken by a guy with a voice that everyone agrees is not made for radio. Yes, yes, those... (laughs) Those two can be yoked together with extreme violence. We're getting close to the end, and we haven't yet talked about Dunn and the Flea. But I think about that, of all the conceits, of all the microscopic and undeserving things to turn into a poem, isn't a flea the lowest, the tiniest? Even Pound's description of an ant bending its knee on a blade of grass has a kind of beauty to it. But a flea. What can there possibly be to say about a flea that's worth saying? Well, if anyone was going to tackle this, and if anyone had the equipment to pull it off, it's probably John Donne. Here's how his poems start. Here's, he's a great one for turning a phrase, and his openings are often unforgettable. Donne's poem, Song, begins, Go and catch a falling star. Isn't that beautiful? Go and catch a falling star. It's a beautiful line. The bait starts out with, come live with me and be my love. That's so beautiful you almost wish he dropped the conceit that his love is like a bait in, the, in a river that fish are drawn to. It's a beautiful line, come live with me and be my love, and the next thing you know it's turning a little creepy. You imagine him reading a poem like that to his beloved who's listening and hearing Beautiful lines like, come live with me and be my love, and saying, oh, John, oh, John, this is wonderful. This is, I'm flattered. I don't know what to say. Wait, 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 what? A bait in the, what? (laughs) What the hell, John? Out the door runs our poet, just ahead of the flung shoe that hits the door, just as he escapes. Our poet is sheepish. And that's the criticism that it's so cerebral it becomes unintentionally comic, or at the very least, not effective. Here's a famous example in Dunn's poem, A Valediction Forbidding Morning. His two lovers are compared to a compass, the kind of compass you use to draw a circle, I mean. It says, If they be two, 
they are too so as stiff twin compasses are too. Thy soul the fixed foot makes no show to move, but doth if the other do, and though it in the center sit, yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it, and grows erect as that comes home. It's clever, and he pulls it off, at least here. It leans and hearkens after it. It's the kind of physical detail, the kind of sharp observation that 20th century novelists love to discover. You can see how a little goes a long way, and it's easy for a Dr. Johnson to just say, I don't care how clever it is that a compass leans and and circles and hearkens after it and grows erect. I get it. I get it. But I don't care. You're comparing two people in love to a freaking school supply. Johnson out. (laughs) Oh, Johnson out. He didn't say that enough, actually. You have to read his essays and insert that yourself. But they're all improved if you do. Take the one we read just earlier. I'll read the end of it. You tell me if that Johnson out doesn't belong. Quote, the most heterogeneous ideas are yoked by violence together. Nature and art are ransacked for illustrations, comparisons, and allusions. Their learning instructs, and their subtlety surprises. But the reader commonly thinks his improvement dearly bought, and though he sometimes admires, is seldom pleased. Johnson out. It's a good tip. Stick with me, listeners. You'll be, you'll be reading like a champion in no time. And by like a champion, I mean in your basement for free with no friends, convinced you're a failure. But we take the point. It's hard to defend the use of school supplies or bait when we're talking about something important and rarefied, something elegant. But man, can John Donne drill those phrases. John Donne eventually became famous for his lectures. And you can see why the sonorousness of these lines is off the charts. Must have been a wonderful deliverer of sermons. His poem, The Canonization, starts out, For God's sake, hold your tongue and let me love. How good is that? How good is that? For God's sake, hold your tongue and let me love. Can't some angry young man turn that into a song lyric or woman? Wouldn't you love to hear... I don't know, pink, singing that, teeth clenched. For God's sake, hold your tongue and let me love. I haven't heard from Pink in a while. I'm not sure if she's still listening to the show. She might still be back with Gilgamesh trying to catch up. She's a busy person, but she needs to get on that. It's a song just waiting to happen. For God's sake, hold your tongue and let me love. Surprised Don Henley didn't use that one. Kanye? The field is yours. So here we go. The flea. This is, for me, the culmination, the one that stands above all the rest, or hops around all the others, as the case may be. The flea. Mark but this flea, and mark in this how little that which thou deniest me is. It sucked me first, and now sucks thee. And in this flea are two bloods mingled be. Are you still with me? Are you still with the poem? Take a look at this flea, my dear. You're denying me sex. That's what this is about. The speaker is complaining 
or arguing or or suggesting says you're denying me sex but just listen you think it's a big deal but really look at how this flea jumps from one to the other of us and our blood is mingled if he bites me and then he bites you there's some mingling there so no big deal right that's how nature works blood mingles from time to time and dunn apparently thought that blood mingled during sex that was either a belief of the time People aren't exactly sure. Maybe he was using it as sort of a metaphor. But that's what he's getting at here. The poem continues. Thou knowest that this cannot be said, a sin, nor shame, nor loss of maidenhead. Yet this enjoys before it woo, and pampered, swells with one blood made of two. And this, alas, is more than than we would do. Oh, stay, three lives and one flea spare where we almost, yea, more than married are. This flea is you and I, and this our marriage bed, and marriage temple is. Though parents grudge, and you, we are met and cloistered in these living walls of jet. Though use make you apt to kill me, let not to that self-murder added be, and sacrilege, three sins in killing three. Let me pause here and say this is about marriage and premarital, premarital sex and sin over parents' objections. Serious subjects, serious enough to lead to Dunn being put in jail. Romantic subjects. And yet, he's not invoking the moon or a nightingale or a sunset. He's invoking a flea. The speaker here, and I think in this one the comedy is intentional at least it seems that way to me i don't think this is one where the poet is off on a bender and isn't in on the joke i think he gets that a flea is a comic way to look at this he's kind of spoofing the speaker he's saying look how the speaker is dancing here's a desperate man coming up with every possible argument isn't that something we've seen before something we recognize in human beings especially of the male species. It's like that song, Baby, It's Cold Outside. That's the speaker, the Dean Martin part. That's an alternative version of the song. A bonus track, Easter egg for all of Dino's John Dunn fans. I really can't stay, sings the woman. Baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. Baby, Take a look at the flea that bit me and now you and think about how our blood has already mingled. So essentially it's like a little marriage has already happened in this flea. And if you kill that flea, you're showing your disrespect for marriage. You don't want to do that, do you? You've been telling me that marriage is the reason why you and I can't sleep together. Something like that. You see how things don't really change. We recognize the speaker in the flea. We listen to him every Christmas singing that song. Back to the poem. Cruel and sudden hast thou since purpled thy nail in blood of innocence. You killed the flea. I told you. Let's not, let's not murder the three of us. This is our marriage. This is our marriage. Our marriage temple in this little guy who just bit, who just bit the two of us. And there you go. Purpling your nail. Poem says, 
Wherein could this flea guilty be except in that drop which it sucked from thee? Yet thou triumphst, and sayest that thou find'st not thyself nor me the weaker now. Tis true, then learn how false fears be. Just so much honor when thou yield'st to me will waste, as this flea's death took life from thee. Eh, honor. Honor, says the speaker. I said the flea was a marriage, and yet you purpled your nail with it, with its carcass. That's how much you thought of marriage. I saw you do it. And now you're just fine, aren't you? You didn't go to hell. Your soul is still okay. Your conscience is clear. So, didn't you just prove that you don't care much about marriage? So, we all know how this one ends, and we know where the speaker ended up, married and then in jail. And we know where the flea ended up. I don't mean the actual flea crushed in the fingernail. I mean the poem. It's in anthologies around the world. It aroused Dr. Johnson's anger and T.S. Eliot's praise. And maybe it's the best poem in the English language about a flea. Or maybe not. It actually has a rival. (laughs) Jonathan Swift, in 1733, wrote the wonderfully comic poem on poetry, a rhapsody. (laughs) Is it just me? Swift, is it just me or is that title incredibly funny? On Poetry, a Rhapsody. <laughs> Reminds me of the Spinal Tap song, Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You, parentheses, tonight. <laughs> Christopher Guest is a great reader, by the way, a great fan of literature. He once gave Michael McKeon a book of Shakespeare's works, and the inscription on the front page said, To Michael, this is that author I was telling you about. So Jonathan Swift wrote this little beauty on poetry, a rhapsody, and wrote these lines, which have been modified and immortalized in a nursery rhyme. But I'll read the lines as Jonathan Swift wrote them. The vermin only tease and pinch their foes superior by an inch. So, naturalists observe, a flea has smaller fleas that on him prey. And these have smaller still to bite them, and so proceed ad infinitum. Not bad. What does our man Dr. Johnson think? Well, this is going to be a tough one because Dr. Johnson hated Swift. He lashed out at him again and again, so much so, with so much volcanic fury, erupting, just erupting when Swift's name came up. And Boswell finally asked Dr. Johnson if Swift had ever done anything to Johnson personally. What does Johnson think of Swift's poem about the flea? It's not violently yoking two thoughts together, a marital bed, a temple of marriage, and a little blood-sucking creature. Does Dr. Johnson give Swift's poetry a pass? Here's... Here's what he said. It's like a master class in backhanded compliments. Quote, In the poetical works of Dr. Swift, there is not much upon which the critic can exercise his powers. They are often humorous, almost always light, and have the qualities which recommend such compositions, easiness and gaiety, 
They are, for the most part, what their author intended. The diction is correct, the numbers are smooth, and the rhymes exact. There seldom occurs a hard-labored expression or a redundant epithet. All his verses exemplify his own definition of a good style. They consist of proper words in proper places. To divide this collection into classes and show how some pieces are gross and some are trifling would be to tell the reader what he already knows and to find faults of which the author could not be ignorant, who certainly wrote, not often to his judgment, but his humor. Oh, end quote. Let me go through that again. It really is amazing how Johnson, it sounds perfectly normal, perfectly reasonable, and everything in it is taking Swift to task. In the poetical works of Dr. Swift, there is not much upon which the critic can exercise his powers. It's not even good enough. Not even, not even worthy enough for a critic to take a look. They are often humorous, almost always light, and have the qualities which recommend such compositions. <laughs> He's taking a crack at, at the humor and the lightness, the irresponsibility of Swift's poems. They are, for the most part, what their author intended. <laughs> you aim low, and you get low. That's what you that's what you end up with when you're completely unambitious. Then he says, the diction is correct, the numbers are smooth, and the rhymes exact. That's what the author intended. Just try to get the words right. Just count them out. There seldom occurs a hard labored expression or a redundant epithet. All the verses exemplify his own definition of a good style. Proper words in proper places. That's his that's his definition of what a poet does. We know that that's lacking, don't we? That's what Dr. Johnson is saying to the reader. We know that poetry is a serious art. To take on serious themes and serious subjects. But then this part, to divide this collection into classes and show how some pieces are gross and some are trifling, those, those are the two classes. These are gross and these are trifling. But if we did that, it would tell the reader what he knows already. Everybody who sees these knows. There's only two things you could say about them. That some are gross and some are trifling. And not only that, not, not just that everyone knows this, the author himself must know. We can tell that just by how many gross and trifling ones there are. There's nothing else. The author here certainly wrote, not often to his judgment, but his humor. Johnson out. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to John Dunn and his mistress purpled her nail with a vermin. It's like she knew we needed a subject for a podcast. Thank you, dear mistress. And my thanks to Tobias and his girlfriend there in Aarhus loading up with books. I hope they have Boswell on their shelf already and some Elliot and of course, some John Donne. You can find us at facebook.com slash history of literature and of course, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss the upcoming shows. We're closing in on 100, and we've got some special plans in the works. You won't want to miss them, so sign up now. And while you're there, 
click the five stars and write a healthy review. We very much appreciate your support. There's all kinds of ways to support the show. Just listening is a big one. Sending us emails to tell us how you're doing and what you're reading and where you are in life is another. Life is like a paperclip. It bends around, seeming to be on a path, and ends in a place not far from where it begins. It looks like billions of others, all alike, but look closer, and you'll see that each one reflects its surroundings, making each one special and unique and... Ah, you can see where this is going, can't you? The metaphysical pull is a very powerful one indeed. Try to resist. Or maybe not. Maybe just enjoy life and enjoy objects, even the little ones. And think about things. So maybe don't resist at all. Let your metaphysical freak flag fly. Oh man. Once again, we've ended up in nowhere land. Our journey continues. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.